Hey, Kingdom Roots friends. Hope you're having an incredible day. I think you're really going to like the episode today because it's a lecture from Scott on one of his favorite topics, which is the gospel. Surprise, surprise. But before we jumped into that, I wanted to let you know about two opportunities I think you might be interested in. The first is a webinar that Scott and I are doing on reading Revelation. It's probably one of the most difficult books of the entire Bible, really, to understand. And so Scott wants to help and give you some perspective and some important things to look at when it comes to both reading and understanding Revelation and teaching it for the sake of the church. So we'd love to have you join us on Wednesday, January 24th at 10 o'clock Central Time. And I'll include a link in the show notes to sign up and register for that, because like I said, we'd love to have you join us. The second opportunity that you may be interested in is the Taste of Northern that our seminary is putting on. We're doing a week of free classes starting February 5th, and there's a a couple different options. Scott's class that he's teaching right now is a New Testament contextual theology class, and that's going to be Monday afternoon, February 5th at 4 p.m., and I'll include a link to sign up to that as well, but we'd love to have you out. Um, Check out you know, what the whole feel of seminary is like, and whether you're close nearby, we'd love to have you join in person, or from anywhere in the world, we'd love to have you join via our Northern Live online learning platform. So thanks so much for um, journeying with us once again today, and um, we're grateful to have you as a listener. But without further ado, here's our episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a lecture from Scott on the King Jesus Gospel. Today I'd like to begin with that famous question that the inimitable Alabama twang accent of Lee Camp in Tokens asked, did James have the gospel? And Luther said the book of James did not contain the gospel, that instead it was a right straw-y epistle. I can quote that for you in German if you'd prefer it. But... um, Luther had a view of the gospel that if it didn't teach justification by faith in his own Lutheran formulas, then a book didn't have the gospel. And James 2, about being justified by works, was just more than Martin Luther could handle. So he put the big thumbs down on this book containing the gospel. But I want to contend, and uh, this is not going to be an academic presentation, but by the time we're done... I will contend with you that James, in fact, does present the gospel. All right. But first we've got to figure out what the gospel is. So I'd like to talk to you about the gospel. And I'd like to begin uh, with what I would call the popular option or the default mode gospel. That most of us uh, probably were taught... Or it was preached to us uh, with sometimes fierce attention to the implications of responding right now 
Or before you go, get home, God may strike you dead or you may die in a car accident. I heard plenty of these sermons every fall in our revival services. And one time we went through just as I am six times. <laughs> and one of my buddies went forward in the second verse of the first hymn just so he could go into the back and pray the prayer and get outside before the rest of us. He knew, he knew what was coming. I don't think that's very reverent, but it was shrewd. And uh, he was out laughing by the time we got out some 45 minutes later. So I'd like to talk about that gospel, but I'd like to talk about how we got that gospel. From Augustine... Uh, St. Augustine in the 4th century, to the Reformers, to the Revivalists. And by the Revivalists, I'm talking about people like John Wesley, um, George Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards, and then into Finney, and Moody, and Billy Sunday, and then Billy Graham. Uh, an evolution has taken place. Uh, some people, I'm not saying who, would call that a, a devolution, that it's wandering away from the gospel while it's becoming highly Americanized and pragmatic and reproducible and deportable. Uh, it can go all over the world. And it is the default gospel, I think, that most of us heard because we're of the age that would, that's what would be heard as the gospel. And here's how it works. Uh, God created you in his image. He loves you. And uh, your story is written into the fabric of humanity through Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, this, by theologians, is called the fall. But if in evangelism you talk about the fall, you've lost contact with your, most of the people you're talking to. But as a result, you're made by God in his image but you have failed to live up to his image. And therefore, and this is the critical point in revivalistic preaching, you are in jeopardy. Now the anthropologists call this liminality, which is an, a, really, a really good word. Which means you're put into a zone of tension. That you are designed for one thing by God, but you have distorted who you are. And therefore, you cannot be connected to God. So you're in liminality. And the, the more intense you can create that sense of liminality or jeopardy, the better chance you have of extracting a decision from a person. All right? Now, that's tough language. But I, I'm trusting you that you can see that I'm trying to be analytical and descriptive. And I don't agree with this. So I'm, I'm not afraid to be critical of this approach to the gospel, all right? But the good news is that in spite of what you've done to the image of God, God still loves you, and he sent his son to die for you, and he dies on the cross as a substitutionary atonement. And if you embrace what God has done for you, your sin of rebellion against God can be forgiven, and you can be reconnected to God, Sometimes people turn this into uh, different kinds of evangelistic, but one of them is the, uh, the, di the diagram they use across the big cavern. And that is, 
you can be reconnected to God if you cross the chasm on the cross. And then you're now reconciled with God. And when you die, you can go to heaven. All right? So, therefore, believe in Jesus and accept him as your Savior and you'll be a Christian. All right? Now, here's something. This is kind of strong language, but I'm a professor. We get, we get by with this stuff in classrooms. So, <laughs> This gospel was unknown until the 20th century. No one ever preached like this. Wesley didn't preach like this. Whitfield did not preach like this. Whitfield preached endless sermons. I mean, they went on and on and on and on and on. Wesley sometimes would have 30 points to his sermons. George, uh, I mean, Finney, uh, Charles Finney uh, was a lawyer. And every sermon he preached was a legal argument. And he never preached a sermon like this. That this gospel that we now know as the gospel was largely the construction of American people like D.L. Moody, combined with Billy Sunday, and then perfected by Billy Graham and Bill Bright. So the Bills, a trinity of Bills, uh, have, have constructed this gospel into a, an American appealing pragmatic formula and it is these four simple laws or five simple lines that is understood to be the gospel. This gospel is designed, and I like this expression, it is designed to precipitate decisions, not to make disciples. Now, Nobody doesn't want disciples. So Billy Graham and Billy Sunday and Bill Bright and D.L. Moody, they all wanted people to be total Christ followers. They really did. And they got a lot of them out of their gospel. But here's something that we now know as fact. 90% of people who pray this prayer of accepting Jesus into their heart as a result of this gospel when they're teenagers have nothing to do with the church when they're 35. Think about those numbers. Those are not good numbers. And we need to be concerned about this because it's much easier to precipitate a decision than it is to give birth to disciples. And a lot of, our, a lot of you are preachers, um, pastors, I call them, you know, we're in that sort of language. And that's what you do, just in case you want to know. <laughs> Unless you've got a big church and all you do is preacher. Uh, by the way, brother preacher is pretty good, I have to say. And I don't know all the Church of Christ stuff going on, but I, I can figure it out. It's, it's pretty good. But... A lot of preachers spend their time trying to wedge people from having made a decision into taking the life of Jesus and discipleship so seriously they give themselves to Jesus. And this is a big struggle in churches. And you know it as well as I do. 
And that, uh, and I want to contend with you that in part, I'm not going to blame it all on this, in part it was created by that gospel. This kind of gospel that I just presented to you creates what I call a salvation culture. Sometimes I call it a soterian culture when I'm around seminarians because it's the Greek word for salvation is soteria. So I think it creates a salvation culture. I believe in salvation. It's fundamental to the gospel. But it's not what the New Testament means by the word gospel. And I think that this can be jarring to people. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and tell your church I said this. <laughs> in fact, I will tell them I never say anything like that. <laughs> and that it's your pastor who's on the tape that you listen to when you go to the Pepperdine lectures. But... Uh, I think we've created a culture, a salvation culture that is obsessed with who's in and who's out. And the in crowd knows they're in. And there's a certain elitism and arrogance, as Sarah Barton said this morning. There's a certain arrogance about knowing you're in the right group and everybody else is not. All right? Like Lutherans. You know, they're not in the right group. Good grief. You know? <laughs> Or Episcopalians and Catholics and all this stuff. So you're, you're, it's a salvation culture that is framed by your church. And every church embodies a culture like this. And I want to contend with you that the, a gospel culture is not identical to a salvation culture. And so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what the gospel is in the pages of the New Testament. Because I'm, I'm certain that you cannot go to any passage in the New Testament that ever teaches that as the gospel. I, there is no text like this in the New Testament. All right? And so where do we go to figure out what the gospel is in the New Testament? The answer to this is we read it until we can figure out the principal passages. And I like to say there are three. All right? The first one, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. Paul, and we're going to look at this in a minute, but Paul explicitly outlines the gospel. And it's not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, he does love you, and he has a plan, and it might not be wonderful, but he wants you to be a part of it. I mean, if you're in Malibu, it's wonderful. But if you're in Arkansas, it might not be as wonderful. <laughs> I can tell you what Chicago's like in the winter. It's not wonderful, ever. Even on warm days, it's below zero at times. So some of you don't know what that's like. But when you go outside and your eyelashes freeze to one another, then you know it's cold. Until then, you know, you don't even need a jacket. So... 1 Corinthians 15 is one text. Now, here's, here's an important one, and I would plead with you, if you don't agree with me today, or if you do, go to this text. Go to the book of Acts and look at the evangelistic sermons in this book. There are between seven and nine, depending on how you count. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches on Pentecost. If, if anybody knows how to preach the gospel, it's Peter. You know, he ought to know what it is. After all, he was there when it was created. And then he preaches a little bit in Acts 3 and 4. 
And then a beautiful sermon in Acts 10, which we'll look at a little bit later. And then Paul preaches in chapter 13, 14. And then we don't know what to do with chapter 17, Paul on the Areopagus. I, I think it's seeker-sensitive, uh, friendly evangelism, pre-evangelism type stuff. And then Stephen's sermon uh, is, it could have been evangelism, but he got really mad at the end and he pointed fingers and he got killed. <laughs> Instead of, of present, in a sense, he told the story uh, in a negative way against the leaders to say that you are as guilty as they are and they had had enough and they put him down. I don't think that's evangelism. You can get by with that on TV maybe, but you cannot get by with it if you're going to call it evangelism. So that's the second place you go to find the gospel. It's 1 Corinthians 15 is first. The sermons in the book of Acts. These are by the two great apostles, Peter and Paul. One's Catholic and one's Lutheran. Right? Or Reformed, depending on... And Jesus is the Church of Christ. Okay? So, and he did not play instruments. I know all about that stuff. He could sing. I can't. So, I, all right. So, Acts 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the sermons in Acts. Now, here's something that is really important. Is stunning. The first four books of the New Testament are called what? Gospels for a good reason. They're the gospel. And what do they do? They gospel. They tell the story about Jesus. This is huge that they called themselves the gospel. And I have had theologians tell me that Jesus didn't preach the gospel and that the Gospels are not the Gospel because no one understood the Gospel until Acts 2. So I have a, a standard line response. It's, it's not kind. It's satire. It's brother preacher stuff. And it's this. Poor Jesus. Born on the wrong side of the cross. He didn't, he didn't get to preach the Gospel. I'm, I'm nervous about people getting behind me here. <laughs> you look safe. But, but Jesus preached the gospel, and if he didn't preach the gospel, we got a mess in the church. So the gospels are the gospel, and every time you talk about Jesus and read a passage from the gospels, you have been evangelized. We, we need to be confident in this story. All right. So those are the three places to go. But I want to start in another place because people ignore it. And that is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I think Paul wrote this letter. And you may know the debates about the authorship of the pastorals and uh, those debates are interesting, but this is in our New Testament, so let's, we can drop that. Here's what, here's what Paul says. Remember King Jesus, a descendant of King David, raised from the dead. This is my gospel. 
Nothing about God loving you. Nothing about needing to believe in Jesus. The gospel is to tell the story that Jesus is the Messiah. It is to tell the story that Jesus is a descendant of King David, so he's a Davidic Messiah. And it is to tell the story that Jesus was raised from the dead. All right? Resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. There are a few charismatics in here as well. But think about this. One of the great stories of the 20th century that we read to our children is a story about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you read the story and you've fallen in love with Aslan. That's a bit close. He's a good substitute. Uh, if, I, if I wear out, I'll just call Sean right here. You can come up here. So we read this story, and Aslan's going along, and you really like this lion, and you like the Pevensey kids, Peter and Edmund and Susan, etc. And Aslan dies on the stone table. And, you know, if you're reading this to little kids, they start to cry because they like Aslan. And then... The stone table cracks. And all of a sudden, Aslan's roaming in the land again. You think, now that's a good story. And the kids now are happy that Aslan's back alive. That's the gospel right there. C.S. Lewis didn't stop and say, now, let's pray a prayer. He didn't stop and say, now you've got to repent and believe in, in this Aslan or this is no good story for you. No, he makes you love Aslan so much that you want to enter into the story and your response is, I want to climb on the lion's back and put my face in his mane. That's gospel preaching right there. It is to tell the story of Jesus so well that people want to be a part of Jesus. And he'll do the saving. He'll call people to repent. He'll call, he's so good, people trust him when they learn about him. All right? I, I taught college students for 17 years. I taught Jesus of Nazareth at 8 o'clock on Tuesday and Thursday morning. Think about it. <laughs> 8 o'clock. 11 o'clock is closer to wake-up time. <laughs> so and I taught these college students Jesus for years. And the greatest thing about teaching college students Jesus is Jesus is unbelievably attractive. Talk about Jesus and people can be interested. And time after time I saw students give their lives to Jesus because they read the Gospels. And I tested the bejesus out of them. <laughs> I had a test with 375 questions from the Gospels. It was trivial pursuit. And am I, the only reason I did it is that's the only way I could get them to read the Gospels. <laughs> and they got evangelized by it. Because the story of Jesus. Notice what Paul says the Gospel is. Jesus is the Messiah. He's a descendant of David. And he was raised from the dead. That's the Gospel for Paul. It's a story about Jesus. Your, the implications of it, your life flow from knowing that this is a story about Jesus. All right? So, 1 Corinthians 15. 
1 Corinthians 15 is a little bit longer, but it says the same thing. And I want to press this home because a gospel culture is different than a salvation culture because a gospel culture is a culture shaped by Jesus and a, and a salvation culture is a culture shaped by salvation. And there's a difference because Jesus is bigger than the benefits that he brings. And so it's, it's a culture that where people come to church, gather with one another to hear from and hear about Jesus. And they'll get saved, but they'll get more than that. They'll get Jesus. They'll get the person. They'll fall in love with Aslan, and they'll learn to ride on his back. So I'm going to translate in my own way 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through a few verses. So you'll see the emphasis that Paul is bringing in this passage. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the gospel I gospeled to you before. You welcomed the gospel then and you will stand firm in the gospel now. It is the gospel that saves you if you continue to believe the gospel message I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you technical language for passing on church traditions in the rabbinic world, not church traditions, but authoritative teaching traditions. I passed on to you what was most important. Now we're going to get the ABCs of the gospel. Paul says explicitly here, this is what is most important about the gospel and what has also been passed on to me. Christ... The word here is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. It's a title, it's a story that has found a solution. So the Old Testament for Paul is a story searching for completion. You know, the way you've, maybe you've read some novels and then there was some interruption and you didn't get to read the last chapter and you were set. So you're left on the precipice of it all coming together. The Old Testament is the precipice. It stops with the Italian prophet Malachi. <laughs> Italians are like that. Stop right here and you're waiting. Come on, I want to see the end of this story. And then Jesus is born. It ties back to the story of the Old Testament because Matthew begins by telling us this is the story of Abraham and David and Jesus, etc. So it's the narrative through a genealogy. I mean, it's not the most electrifying way to begin a book with a list of names you've never heard of, but uh, that's Matthew's form to tell us that the story is coming to completion in Jesus. So when he calls him Christ, he's not using a name. He's using a title, a role, a narrative, a story. He's died for our sins. So salvation and death for our sins is inherent to what Jesus does. Just as the scriptures said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And he was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve after that, etc. And he talks about the life of Jesus. The gospel for, Peter, for Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and he announces that this is not his gospel. This is the gospel of the apostolic church. This is the core of the Bible. In the beginning was the gospel. Right. In the beginning, the gospel was to tell the story of Jesus' life as the Messiah 
that he died for our sins, that he was buried. No one puts the burial of Jesus in their gospel story today. I've never seen it in a gospel tract. And I have a snoopy little addiction of looking for it. I study gospel tracts. It's goofy. I just, every time I see one, I look to see if they mention the burial of Jesus. Of course, none do, so I'm always confirmed in my snoops. He was buried and he was raised according to the scriptures. Notice this, according to the scriptures twice, because Messiah and death and resurrection are parts of the narrative of the Old Testament that have come to completion. And then he was exalted and he's coming again to rule. And then he will hand over the rule to the Father. To gospel, I think is a good verb, to gospel is to tell the story of Jesus. All right? We're a long way from, I have to admit, from Billy, Billy Sunday and Billy Graham and Bill Bright. I like these people. They've been good for the American church. But their understanding of the gospel is not the way the apostolic gospel was understood. And what gets eliminated is that Jesus becomes a means in that gospel rather than the point of the gospel. Instead of being Christological at its center, it's soteriological. It's about salvation. Well, it's not very far from being about salvation to being about me. So what's in it for me is salvation, and we've turned it in too much about us. You know, you read Narnia, and you love Aslan, right? If you read the Gospels, you should love Jesus. You shouldn't say, what a good man I am. It's, it's not about you. You get so absorbed in the story about Jesus, you don't care about you, and it is in not caring about you and caring about Jesus that you become the you you were meant to be. John Ortberg. So that was the title of John Ortberg's book, wasn't it? The, the me I was meant to be or something like that? Me I want to be. You want, you want to do this? When you get off track, just let me know. Okay. Church of Christ preacher right there. I'm just trying to help out, brother. Just trying to help out. Okay, now, let's go to a sermon. We're going to go to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10. Now, this is actually the first time the gospel's ever been preached to a Gentile. Well, it's actually to the Ethiopian eunuch, but I don't like talking about eunuchs. That's just, that's too big of a distraction for right now. Right? So we're going to talk about Acts 10. Plus, it was too brief to be of much use for what I'm talking about here. But Peter is talking to a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius and Peter have both had visions. And these visions from God are to bring them together. So Peter, almost in a cosmic sense, gets to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. All right? And this Cornelius represents a sort of a mediating character in the, in the book of Acts because he's a God-fearer, which means he's a Gentile who's taken a liking to the Jewish ideas. Right? He's a God-fearer. Right? So this brings them together. And then those are great stories. And Peter has this unbelievable vision where he sees all this non-kosher food 
And the first time in his life, he tasted pork barbecue <laughs> from Texas. <laughs> no? What, beef? Beef is from Texas? Pork is from Tennessee. There's no pigs in Texas? You can't even taste it. Anyway, it's all barbecue sauce. Is that right? We're back over that salad bowl. Remember that? All right, so, so Peter tastes pork the first time, you know, and he thinks, why have you been holding this back from us, God? This is pretty good. Uh, and and it's, this is a parable of his encounter with Gentiles. So now Cornelius is with him, and Peter replies in verse 34, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. This is a colossal admission. Because Peter knew that God favored the Jews. He knew that God had elected the Jews and that they were the people of God in this world and everybody else was pagans, idolaters, destined for Gehenna. And he says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, God accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Now, this is a great text in missiological discussions because some people take it very narrowly. These are people who are going to respond. And others take it very broadly. and They become inclusivists, etc. But I don't think we can resolve it from these verses alone. But he realizes that in every nation, there are people who want to praise God and accept his Messiah and follow him and do what is right. This is the gospel for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God. Now, this peace with God is peace between peoples, between Jews and Gentiles. This is not when peace like a river tendeth my way or something, you know, you can sing it. But um, it's, that's not what this is. This is not talking about inner peace. This is talking about peace between Jews and Gentiles, this great tension that is unraveling in the New Testament, and they're beginning to realize they're one family of God. That there is peace with God through Jesus, who is the Messiah. Now, that's a Jewish expression, and he is Lord of all. And this is more of a Gentile expression. He's Messiah and Lord. This is Peter's expression, uh, uh, words in, in Acts 2 when he realized this gospel uh, was for all. You know what happened. Now, look at Peter's preaching the gospel to Cornelius, and he's telling us the story about Jesus. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after John began preaching his message of baptism. You know what happened. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost. My grandma was hyper-Pentecostal, and Holy Ghost was one word. So Holy Ghost in power. Then Jesus went around doing good. Technical term for being kind to all people. This is what we would today call social justice and compassion and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Interesting expression that Jesus did miracles because God was with him. So he was 
acting in faith upon God to do these miracles. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. There's Good Friday. But God raised him to life on the third day. That's Easter Sunday. The stone table cracks and the good news can now be announced because the man is no longer dead. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. There Peter put his Calvinism on for a moment. We were, the, we, we were those who ate with him and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one who appointed by God to be the judge of all. He's the one. Now this is great what Peter says, what is said in Acts 10.44. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed. They're, uh, you know, they're elect. Gentiles aren't. They're amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit, listen to this language, had been poured out even on Gentiles. All right. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. All right. This is a gospel sermon. And what did he do? He told people about Jesus. All right. God is at work. Whenever you tell people about Jesus, you've got to believe this, that God is at work whenever you tell people about Jesus, because God is at work whenever you tell people about Jesus. All right? I read this story one time of a man named Hassan, and he was an evangelical, fired up, We'll call him Churches of Christ Believer in Cairo. All right? And he knew his life was in danger because he was preaching the gospel in places he wasn't supposed to be preaching the gospel. Three o'clock in the morning, he wakes up to a knife at his throat. And he looks up and he sees a Muslim imam with a knife in his hand at his throat. And the imam says to him, come with me. What are you going to do? (laughs) He's thinking, this is it. This is the last night of my life. And he guides him with his hand in his back, sometimes with his grip on his cloak, through through the city of Cairo. Then all of a sudden they come to a building and he says, go through this door. And he goes through this door and he says, climb the stairs. And he climbed the stairs about... I think it's seven or eight floors. He comes out on a roof in Cairo thinking, this is it. I'm going to have to jump to my death. I'll get pushed over the edge. And he, he, looks, he pushes him to the edge, and he says, jump to the building across. He says, it's too far. He said, run. So he ran and jumped, and he made it. And as he landed, he looked to the right, and the imam landed next to him. He thought, wow. What's happening here? He said, go through that door. So he went through that door. He thought, I'll live longer if I go through this door. He goes in this room and he sees 10 imams in a circle. And as he gets in the room, the head imam says to him, are you a Christian, Hassan? He said, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. He said, so do we. 
teach us the Bible. Now, you didn't know that's happening, did you? It's happening. God is at work all over the world, bringing the people to his name, even with Gentiles, as Peter said it. This is what God is doing in this world. And I've learned that telling people about Jesus is effective strategy. Trying to convince them that they're going to hell is not as effective. <laughs> but it can precipitate decisions. Sitting at the back of one of the classes I taught was a young woman. And I was teaching introduction to the Bible and I give a test on the first day. I did. I don't teach at that school anymore. And it, <laughs> that wasn't meant to be funny. So, what was funny about that? It was funny? Okay. Well, I'm not teaching there anymore. But she's sitting at the back row, and after about 15 minutes, she comes up to me and she says, I, this is a test on the Bible, what you know about the Bible. First question, you know. Who are the first two people in the Bible? You know, Basic stuff. Everybody knows. She comes up to me and she says, I, I don't think this class is for me. And I said, why? She said, I can't answer any questions in the whole test. And I said very empathically, not even the first one? And she said, no. I went, oh, that was a stupid question on my part. And I said, here's what I said, what's your name? She said, my name is Andrea. And I said, Andrea, I'm going to teach this class for you, because you have to take this class. I said, I want you to sit in the back row. And every time you have a question about anything I'm saying, you just do this with your nose. And I'll back up, and I'll explain it. And when you go like this, I know, I know it's clear. And the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of nose. And after about the third or fourth week, there was none. And I thought, this is interesting. And at the end of the semester, she wrote a long paper in which she told me this story. That when she was a child... Her father wouldn't let her read the Bible because he had been abused by a Catholic priest in the city of Chicago. And she, she, they couldn't talk about God. They couldn't go to church. They couldn't talk about Christianity. Nothing. So she said, when I came to North Park University, I literally knew nothing about the Bible. And what I knew was that it was bad. But she said something happened when I was reading the Bible. She said, and she didn't quote it quite right, but it was close enough. She said, my heart is strangely warm when I read the Bible. Or it's warmed when I read the Bible. I thought, strangely, and you could be a Wesleyan. <laughs> but she became a Christian from reading the Bible and being exposed to the Bible story about Jesus. And she, she took my course on Jesus of Nazareth the next year. She graduated four years later in the nursing program, a Christian nurse in the city of Chicago. Now, I, did, I never preached the four spiritual laws in class, but she heard about Jesus so much that she fell in love with Jesus. And we need to be confident enough in Jesus and realize that we should create cultures in our churches that are about Jesus, not about salvation. Because if we're talking about Jesus, it will be about salvation. First Jesus, then so first Christology, then soteriology. So to evangelize is to tell people about Jesus. A gospel culture differs from a salvation culture, which is about in and out, and a gospel culture is about Jesus and those who are connected to him and want to be connected to him.
So, does James preach the gospel? All right. Now, we have a new way of looking at James. So, I just thought, dear Martin Luther, I know you're listening. And now you know you're wrong. And this is the day that Martin Luther becomes Churches of Christ. All right. Here's what James, here's how he starts his letter. This letter is from James, or Jacob, a slave of God and of the Lord King Jesus. That's gospel right there. All right, in James 2.1, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus the Messiah if you favor some people over others? Did James preach the gospel? He told the story about Jesus. But here's the subtle element of the book of James. If you've ever read the book of James, you have this, and, and you know your Bible pretty well, you have this strange experience of realizing Jesus, it sounds like Jesus in every paragraph, but he never quotes him until the last chapter on an insignificant line in Jesus. Yes, yes, and no, no. And you think, what took you so long to quote him? And then you realize that a Jewish wisdom culture is to imbibe and to embrace and to internalize your wise sage so deeply that you can't talk without sounding like your sage. This gospel is so much like the Sermon on the Mount that you hear these echoes in every passage and yet no quotations because this man had embraced his brother so deeply he didn't know any other way to talk than to talk like Jesus. That's to be gospelized. All right? So I would uh, plead with you. I've got, I'm on my last minute. I would plead, plead with you to think about constructing a gospel culture in your churches. Yes, it will include salvation, but it will be one where people say, I come to this place because I get to hear about Jesus, and he's the one I want to talk about. All right? Thank you.